This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. fine carbohydrates that you use to a minimum, those are your white sugar, white rice, white flour, etc., etc., etc. Eat at regular intervals. Drink tons of water. Fresh, regular water. None of that fancy stuff. Nothing flavored. Nothing sweetened. Just water. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss how to control your blood sugar naturally. We'll find out about the dangers of processed foods. We'll learn how cities are changing diabetes. And lastly, we'll explore the concept of conscious transformation. But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products in the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is a regular contributor to Tonic Magazine and this show. Welcome back, sir. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. How about you? Hunky-dory. Fighting a cold, but it's not COVID. So we're, you know, that, that's a blessing, right? Oh, that's a big blessing. So today we're going to talk about blood sugar and controlling blood sugar levels, which is, I'm sure, of interest to everybody. So let's start at the very beginning. What is hyperglycemia? Well, hyperglycemia is the clinical word for high blood sugar. And although it sounds really quick and easy when you say, oh, it's high blood sugar, it's like, okay, yeah, whatever, it's actually a very serious health concern. And the way it happens is when your body doesn't make enough or doesn't effectively use insulin, the hormone that regulates blood sugar, also known as glucose, in your body. Now, most people know that high blood sugar is associated with diabetes. It's much more insidious than that. It really, really is. Okay, so let's sort of break it down a bit. So what exactly does insulin do? So what insulin does in a healthy person, it moves your blood glucose or your blood sugar from your blood into your cells where your body uses it for energy. But when insulin is impaired or you're in a state of hypoglycemia, or you have type 2 diabetes, your body's cells aren't able to respond to insulin as well as they should, or the insulin isn't as effective as it should be. And in later stages, it actually works that your body may start to reduce the amount of insulin it produces if this happens over a long period of time. Now, everyone should know that all of us have natural fluctuations in our blood sugar. It's based on the time of day we eat, it's based on what we eat, our level of physical activity, and our, our metabolism. The concerns arise when our levels are too high for too long a period of time. This prolonged elevation leads to all, a, a lot of health issues, none of them good, and one of the major ones being type 2 diabetes. 
So what is type 2 diabetes? Well, diabetes, there's two general kinds of diabetes. There's type 1, which is you're born with it, it's genetic, there's not much you can do about it, okay, fine. Type 2 diabetes is one that develops over time, and there's a lot you can do about it. And diabetes, no matter which form, is a chronic medical condition in which the levels of blood sugar, or glucose again, build up in your bloodstream. When it's uncontrolled, type 2 diabetes can lead to chronic high blood glucose levels, which cause a ton of symptoms and potentially lead to a lot of serious complications. What ends up happening is your body needs to rely on alternate energy sources inside your tissues and muscles and organs to basically have enough energy to function. And this causes a chain reaction of symptoms and complications. Now, lots of words there, etc. Here's the big thing. Mm-hmm. Almost half of all adults are living with high blood sugar issues, either diabetes or prediabetes, and the numbers are rising. And, and, and if people are thinking these complications, eh, okay, here are some of them. Eye problems that can lead to blindness feeling of numbness in your extremities, which is known as neuropathy, which could lead to amputation, kidney disease, gum disease, heart attack and stroke, and here's one that really scares a lot of people, cancer risk. You can have twice the risk of liver, pancreatitis, and endometrial cancer, and about a 50% increase in your risk of colorectal, breast, and bladder cancers. And all of these complications reduce your quality of life and in in a lot of cases actually reduce life expectancy quite dramatically yeah there's there's a huge correlation between being pre-diabetic and diabetic and an increased risk of other disease which of course leads to a higher mortality rate the happy news so we've scared the hell out of everybody good work joel but let's give them some good news because the good news is if you catch it early enough you can make lifestyle decisions which will minimize the possibility that you become pre-diabetic or diabetic, right? Definitely. And even if you become pre-diabetic or diabetic, as I am, I put my hand up, I am a type 2 diabetic, you can still control it. It is imminently controllable through actions you take. If If you're progressive about it, you can do quite well and reduce your risk of a lot of these complications. All right, so let's see if we can go through some of the choices that people can make that would would put us in the right direction. So let's start with our diet. Yeah, as you would guess, because it's blood sugar, diet is a huge factor. The first thing you want to do is eat a wide variety of foods that are rich in fiber and healthy carbohydrates. And, And I stress that a lot, healthy carbohydrates. You want to have fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and whole grains. You do not want to do juices. Or concentrates. No grape juice, no orange juice. Have an orange. Have some grapes. Don't have the juices. The juices, just think of them as concentrated sugars. And if you eat healthy and a wide variety of of foods this way, you can keep your blood glucose levels steady. And what you want to do is look at what's called the food's glycemic index. Mm -hmm. And what the glycemic index is, is the rate at which the foods cause your blood sugars to rise. The lower the glycemic index, 
the slower the sugar rise. And glycemic index tables are available widely on the Internet. You don't have to pay for them. You just look at them, and they're relatively easy to understand. And, you know, there are sweeteners out there. So like, if you do have a sweet tooth or if you do enjoy, you know, a sweet palate, there are sweeteners there that have lower glycemic index than others, right? Definitely. So, uh, the two that I use in my household all the time are stevia and erythritol. Mm-hmm. Those are the two I use. I use them separately and in combination depending on which recipe I'm using. We don't really use sugar in my house because of it. I'm still learning, right? Like for me, health and wellness is an ongoing process. I've actually cut out putting sugar in anything. So in other words, if I were having cereal or oatmeal or whatever, I will not add sugar. I don't add sugar to my coffee anymore. You know, there's still sugar in my food. It's just a fact of life. Uh, but I try and cut out those. And I also try and cut out the alcohols that have high sugar content as well, because yep. there's some, well, some of those are quite bad. Definitely. Well, one thing I have learned by reducing the amount of sugar I use in my foods, because I'm a cook and a baker myself, yep. I found that my desire for sugars has actually been reduced dramatically. You know, it used to be I used to love like North American chocolate, right? Which is so sweet. It's sugar. They're candy bars. They're not chocolate bars. <laughs> but having cut out the sugar, my taste, I, I think this is what you're saying. Like your desire for sugar and the taste for sugar changes. Like things will taste sweeter to you if you actually cut out the sugar because there are natural sugars in pretty much every fruit and vegetable we eat. You can even caramelize meat, right? Like when you get a sear on meat, you're, oh, yeah. car- you're caramelizing it, right? Oh, yeah. Definitely. I completely and utterly agree, and, and you actually feel a lot better also. I agree. Anything else on diet, or should we move forward? Definitely. You want to reduce the refined carbohydrates that you use to a minimum. Mm-hmm. Those are your white sugar, white rice, white flour, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Eat at regular intervals. Drink tons of water. Fresh, regular water. None of that fancy stuff, nothing flavored, nothing sweetened, just water. Mm-hmm. It helps Keep your kidneys to flush out excess sugars through your urine. Keeps you hydrated. It lowers your blood sugar levels. And also is just generally healthy. Avoid eating before bed. And work on being mindful of portion sizes. And stop eating when you're full. A lot of people haven't gotten that down. Those are the big ones. The last big one, avoid empty calories. If something doesn't have nutrition, don't eat it. Even if it tastes good, Joel? Even if it tastes good, because I guarantee you there is something out there with a ton of nutrition that tastes just as good. Okay. I want to jump ahead. I know we're going to talk about exercise, but I want to jump ahead to supplements. Sure. So, so let's expand. You, you mentioned fiber before. So let's talk about fiber as a supplement. Sure. There's two general kinds of fiber. You've got insoluble and soluble. And insoluble's job is to irritate your colon which causes your colon to push stuff out, so it cleans you. It's the cleaning part. Soluble fiber does everything else. It helps with your blood sugar. It helps with uh, kidneys. It helps with your liver. Everything else you've heard with good things about fiber is soluble fiber. Now, the nice thing is when it comes specifically to blood sugar, soluble fiber slows down your body's absorption of carbohydrates, so it stops it from growing so fast and it lets your body catch up and process the sugars. It works great. And it's been shown in thousands of studies to help you. There is no negative to soluble fiber. Mm -hmm. The problem is 
it's, un- it's almost impossible to get enough soluble fiber from our food every day. That's why I recommend taking easy, taste-free, soluble fiber supplements. One of the big ones is a brand called Fiberific. Mm-hmm. The next one is my, my favorite pair of vitamins, DMK2. Yep. These vitamins, they're symbiotic, and they, they help with virtually every organ and system in your body, including blood sugar control. What vitamin D does is it reduces insulin resistance and that it has the ability to increase insulin production in your pancreas naturally, improve glucose tolerance, and increase insulin sensitivity. Now, vitamin K2 activates a protein called osteocalcin, and osteocalcin helps vitamin D do its work, and it by itself also helps reduce blood sugar by improving insulin sensitivity throughout your cells. Now you move on to chromium. Mm-hmm. Chromium is a micromineral, and when I say micromineral, that means you don't need very much of it. Not like calcium where you need a whole bunch. It is a micromineral. And what it does is it increases the efficiency of your liver. It helps your body interact with insulin so that it tolerates glucose better. Essentially, it lets your body handle glucose better. But you want to be cautious. A little bit goes a long way. Don't go crazy with chromium because then it could actually end up harming your liver. Mm. Now, there's a substance called berberine, and many people haven't heard of berberine. I had not. Berberine is an active compound found in a few herbs, not that many, including one of my personal favorites, golden seal. And it's, it's a bitter compound. It's, it does not taste that great. Okay. <laughs> um, but it's shown incredible results for both immune enhancements, which is what the indigenous peoples used it for, digestive health, which is what it's used for in traditional Asian medicines, and to lower blood glucose. And in some studies, researchers have found that berberine itself is as effective as the, the big blood sugar drugs, including metformin. Wow. Now, to get the most benefit, you want to use a liquid golden seal root extract. I'm going to be honest, it's not going to taste great, but you don't have to take a ton of it. <laughs> okay. And you have to work on making it taste better, okay? And the problem is part of its action and the reason it works is because it's bitter. It's the bitterness reacting in your gut that actually helps it work. Got it. Now, here's a fun one, cinnamon. Now, most people enjoy a little sprinkle here, a little sprinkle there. They love the smell of it, especially in cinnamon cookies. The problem is little bits won't do the trick. You need a fair chunk. But So, so you want to use it in capsules or in concentrated liquid supplements. You just take one dose, according to label directions, every time you eat carbohydrates. And what it does is, it very similarly to insulin, just on a much weaker scale, by helping you transport glucose from your bloodstream into cells. Okay. Now, one of the minerals you want to take that is not a micromineral is magnesium. Mm-hmm. As a society, we're magnesium deficient. Just <laughs> putting it out there, it is. It's been linked to tons of issues, the deficiency including muscle pain and stiffness, cardiovascular disease, sleep issues, stress, and I could keep going. But the nice thing is magnesium has been linked when it's deficient to a higher risk of developing diabetes. So by taking magnesium, you reduce that risk dramatically. It, re- it works by reducing insulin resistance and helping your body to regulate the actual blood sugar levels itself. The other big one is green tea. Green tea is amazing. It, it does so many multiple things in your body, and they found 
that if you take it immediately following a meal, it reduces the blood sugar rising from that meal. And you can use it as a tea or you can use it as a supplement. Your choice. Excellent. Let's circle back to exercise really briefly. How does exercise fit in? What exercise does essentially is as your blood sugar is rising, if you exercise, the exercise actually forces your body to use that blood sugar and, and, and use it for energy to get you exercising. So essentially you're blunting the effect. You don't have to go nuts. You don't have to turn into the Incredible Hulk. What you want to do is talk to the, your doctor to find out what's right for you. Exercise regularly throughout the day and aim for approximately about a half an hour of physical activity a day or use a fitness app or a, or a watch and get 10,000 steps a day. Which I know you do religiously. I do. The other big thing to do is do exercises you enjoy. If you don't do something you enjoy, it's going to seem like work. If you do something that you enjoy, you're going to just do it automatically and it'll become part of your daily routine. Amen to that. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Always my pleasure. That was Joel Thuna. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the dangers of processed foods on The Tonic. Did you know that if you walk or run and are out of alignment, you increase your chances of seriously injuring yourself? We're all athletes, healthy, injured, pro, amateur, veteran, novice. Plantiga empowers you to perform better, recover faster, and build resilience through deeper understanding of how you move. Utilizing their sensor insoles, they measure your movement in detail, speed, gait, asymmetries, and so much more. Then you work one-on-one with a dedicated movement coach that gives you personalized insights and programming to help you achieve your goals, whether that's running a race or fending off that looming injury. To reach your potential and keep you in the game for as long as possible, register for the Plantiga Movement Health Program at plantiga.com slash beta. Gentlemen, are prostate problems spoiling your day or waking you up at night? Ladies, are you tired of these disruptions? Discover Prostate Perform. Formulated with clinically proven natural ingredients, Prostate Perform helps reduce the frequency and urgency of men's bathroom breaks. Why wait? Prostate Perform relieves symptoms of BPH in men so you can both get back to enjoying your favorite activities. Available exclusively at quality health food stores. To learn more, visit newrootsherbal.com. And to ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Shauna Lindzen is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalindzen.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. How are you? I'm doing fine. So... You know, I know that most dietitians and nutritionists tell you to sort of, if you're in the food market, you do all your shopping around the perimeter, right? Mm -hmm. And in the middle aisles is where we get the processed foods. The process, exactly. But today we're going to talk about different levels of processed foods, right? Because they're not all the same. Exactly. Yes. And there's actually a classification that came out in 2009, but it lately has been in the nutrition world a very hot system to talk about. And it's called NOVA, and it doesn't stand for anything, N-O-V-A, but it's a universal 
classification. So it's across the world, not just North America. It's everywhere. Okay, and how does it work? Like, what is it? So there's three different categories that we talk about. And the first one is whole foods. So these are your unprocessed foods. And the second one is are minimally processed foods. And the third one's ultra-processed foods. And it helps consumers put food choices into categories. Can you give examples of... Absolutely. Of, you know, I think I understand what you're saying, but for those who don't, explain. It's so like a raw food would be like raw fruits and vegetables, right? Yes. So that's the first category. So when you think of a whole food, you think of something that looks like what it sounds like. So if I say apple, you can see an apple. So that's like apples or the seeds or the roots of a food, like a sweet potato, for instance. So whole foods aren't touched. Like we haven't processed them at all and we can recognize them. Then an example of a processed food or minimally processed food would be something like cheese. So it started off as milk and now we've manufactured it to cheese. Another example would be canned fish. So for instance, canned tuna or salmon doesn't look like a fish, but it only has two or three ingredients, which would be fish, salt, and oil or water. So that would probably include like grains that have been processed to get the hull out, something along those lines? Yes, like lightly processed. So for instance, an example of a grain that's a whole grain would be a wheat berry. Sure. An example of a whole oat would be a steel cut oat. When you get into the minimally processed, the rolled oats, right? Mm Because they've been rolled. And another easy way to think about the next step, the minimally processed step, is they will remove like an inedible part for you. Right. That type of thing. Like the fish head, for instance, if we're talking about the canned fish. And you'll like this, a whole food for wheat, like the wheat kernel, once you minimally process that, there's the artisanal breads, for instance, are called processed. But the ultra-processed bread would be a bread that's mass-produced, like a Wonder Bread or something like that, that can sit on this shelf for weeks. I've got a question for you. So sometimes you go into the produce department and they have, for example, taken all the pomegranate seeds out of the pomegranate. Or they've chopped up a melon and taken the rind off. Is that a whole food still? It's still whole, yeah, because there's only one ingredient. Okay. So I want you to think of it as the whole is one ingredient, the processed may have one to three ingredients, and then ultra-process, they start chemically modifying it, nutrients are lost, that type of thing. So I'll give you an example of, for instance, let's take an apple. So an apple would be the whole food. The process would be applesauce. Mm-hmm. And then the ultra-processed would be like Applejack cereal. Got it. Like something that looks nothing like it now. That makes sense. So why should we choose whole foods over ultra-processed foods? Many, many, many reasons. Okay. (laughs) Like, where do I start? Well, start somewhere. (laughs) Start somewhere. So with whole foods, as I mentioned, you're getting all the nutrients. You're getting the fiber. You're getting the peel on the apple, that type of thing. And you're not getting the chemicals added. Once you start processing foods, you start changing them and taking out nutrients. Once you get to ultra-processed foods, unfortunately, there are so many additives in there that we can't even, like, pronounce them, right? Like, 
I don't even know what half the additives are, and I've been doing this for 30 years. So it really comes down to try to choose as many whole foods as you can, try to choose the next step minimally processed, and try to choose less of the ultra-processed. For a lot of people, everybody likes their cookies and treats and, Mm -hmm. and potato chips and all the fun stuff and chocolate bars. But I think for most people, they're buying the processed foods because they don't have the time or perhaps even the skill in taking the raw ingredients and making something out of them, right? Isn't it a question of time and convenience for a lot of people? It's funny you say that because I get a lot of questions from clients where they say, what should I eat as snacks? And when they think of snacks, they think of something they can buy in a package. Right. And then I think to myself, why can't we do one step back and say an apple and some almonds, for instance? Like we're always trying to find like the best product out there. Why don't we go more towards how it came out in nature? I'm with you. I mean, I agree. And that's how I snack. You know, before I work out, I will literally take a handful of like peanuts or almonds and maybe a nectarine or or an apple. And that gives me the energy to do the tough workout, right? Exactly. And, And I actually enjoy cooking and I enjoy the process of it. But I know many people don't. Right. And and that's sort of the dichotomy. I think most people Mm -hmm. would prefer to eat the whole foods. They just don't know how to go about it. Yeah, exactly. But once we educate them on if we think about the ultra processed foods, they're typically some of them are more expensive because they have gone through more processing. Right. Yeah. So if you're on a budget, it's better to actually buy the natural foods rather than ultra processed. Interestingly enough, people don't think about kind of the repercussions, like what's the end result? What did the studies show if we eat too many ultra-processed foods? So there are studies, and lots of the research shows they link ultra-processed foods to certain cancers, to depression. There's even something called like frailty syndrome that they link it to. Like the more you eat of the ultra-processed, the less nutrients you're getting, and, you know, it's not good for your muscle mass, that type of thing. And there's a significant risk for mortality, which it means to have, when you have a lot of ultra-processed foods, because you're really not doing your body a service. So to bring it full circle back to your question about how do we go about this, when you go shopping, as you said, try just to think about that. Like if you pick up a package and you see 15 different ingredients, Think about, hmm, you know, what's that going to do to my system? And I find that the newer research is showing with something like people who have irritable bowel, if they eat a lot of ultra-processed foods, they're getting a lot of gums, like different chemical gums that are man-made that actually can affect things like irritable bowel. So if we talk about the health implications, I think people kind of take one step back. Well, you know, what I was talking about before, though, is sort of like the inconvenience and we were speaking about cost. You know, the one way that the processed food manufacturers keep the cost down is to go with the lowest cost ingredients. Mm-hmm. Quality. Yeah, but also low cost, right? Like sugar and salt are not terribly expensive ingredients, but they certainly, you know, if we're being honest, they make your food taste good, right? So if mm-hmm. you're, so if it's laden with sugar and salt and, and perhaps a highly milled flour, there's going to be no nutritional value, but tons of flavor there. And it'll probably be not that expensive, 
relative to other products because those ingredients are really cheap, really. I agree. And I think for people who buy a lot of ultra-processed foods like that, I think that they should try to go somewhere in between. So let's say you're not going to eat like oats or, you know, veal cut oats in the morning. You want to get like a cereal. Mm -hmm. So go somewhere in between. Go to one that has nuts and seeds and it's a convenience food but it's minimally processed not ultra processed i think that's the way to kind of move one step in the right direction yeah i would agree with you and also like i think you would find you know building the skill set to actually work with the food like mm-hmm. it, like once you understand it a bit better like it it stays with you you don't forget it it's like riding Basic, a bike you know yeah, like you could the cooking skills yeah. and nowadays like you can even get like delivery systems where you know you can get food boxes delivered that have the whole foods but they've prepared it for you so there are ways of getting around if you don't want to cook or you're not a great cook or you don't have the interest in cooking so just take one step back and try not to get so many ultra processed and try to go more towards the whole and the minimally processed if you can. Well, that's great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jamie. That was Shauna Lindzen. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on the tunnel. Hi, this is Jamie Buston of The Tonic. If you enjoy The Tonic talk show and podcast, you'll love The Tonic newsletter. With links to the podcast and articles from the magazine, the newsletter will also let you know about upcoming health and wellness events, curated articles from across the internet that expand on the health and wellness topics important to you. There's contests and prizes and so much more. Best of all, it comes directly to you. To subscribe, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. The Tonic newsletter, you know for what ails you. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Adam Marcella is a Director of External Affairs at Novo Nordisk Canada, Inc. Adam has over 20 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry, including supporting the development and management of patient support programs for rare and chronic diseases. Adam is spokesperson for the Cities Changing Diabetes Program in Canada. He holds a master's degree in occupational and environmental health from the University of Toronto and a BSc in environmental toxicology. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. Thanks for having me. So we just threw out there Cities Changing Diabetes, and I know everybody who's listening is thinking, what is that? Yeah, it's a bit of a loaded term, but it's really a, a program that started in way back in 2014, and it was a, a public-private partnership model that we've developed over time, and it wasn't just Novo Nordisk. We were one of the principals starting it off. It was also the Steno Diabetes Center, Copenhagen. Of course, Novo Nordisk is headquartered in Denmark, and also the University College London, and it was really based on this notion that 
we don't know nearly enough about how living in an urban environment either increases risk factors for diseases like diabetes, chronic diseases like diabetes, or the flip side of that, I guess, is how living in a city can actually be a benefit and contribute to your health, right? Depending on the types of services and the type of built environment that you happen to live around, it could have either a positive or negative impact on your health status. So the program itself is really designed to address some of the social and and cultural factors that increase vulnerability to type 2 diabetes and other serious chronic diseases like obesity, and it's really focused on urban environments. So this was started in 2014 with just a handful of cities. It's now grown to 40 cities, with Mississauga being the 40th to join, uh, but also cities like Rome, Houston, Philadelphia, Copenhagen, just to name a few. Okay, so somebody must have conceived of this notion that there's a connection between living in an urban environment and diabetes. And I guess, it, like, to my mind, it would be sort of like we're all urbanizing, right? Like more people live in cities than they used to, and the rate of diabetes is going up. So I guess somebody said, hmm, I wonder if there's a correlation. Is it as simple as that, or is there a different connection there? Yeah, it is. And, and I think, like, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about increased rates of, exactly as you just said it, increased rates of urbanization. That, that trend probably goes back now a century. More and more people living in cities around the world and at, we know that as people move into cities, there's this general trend towards increasing rates of diabetes. So these are the types of things that the program is really designed to look at. It's you know more than 400 million people today living with diabetes. That number is expected to climb to well over 700 million by 2045 if we don't do something. And you've got most people around the world either living in cities, you know, half the world's population living in cities. So that urbanization trend is there. And you start to ask the questions, well, why do people move into cities? That's a whole other conversation, right? But they're they're moving there for opportunities, for economic prosperity. So all of this kind of compounds to you're living in a city, and we know that cities fundamentally change the way you live, the way you work, the way you eat. You know, that's a whole other conversation. Like, what does your food environment look like in a city versus if you lived in a rural setting, right? And that's not to suggest for a second, Jamie, that diabetes isn't important in a rural environment. Of course it is. Like, your listeners who might not live in a city, diabetes is a concern there as well. But we know that there are some specific and unique challenges around living in an urban center. To my mind, just like understanding issues like walkability and, and, you know, food deserts and things like that, I would have thought suburbanization is really the issue, right, as opposed to urbanization. But maybe maybe I'll be edified as, as we talk about this a bit more. I think that's the real change. Like, we've always had cities, right? The, the real issue is, like, you know, are people driving to work as opposed to walking to work or things like that? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, and I think that that comes back to Mississauga. Like, right, I'm a, yeah. a proud 905er for uh, most of my life, and I think that's you know, you really get at some of the unique challenges. And cities changing diabetes is absolutely not about imposing solutions on communities or cities. I mean, it, it, every city, the, the reality in that city is going to be unique and different. So some of the solutions that might work in a city like Copenhagen, and there's some great examples from the 39 other cities within the network, that may or may not work in Mississauga, right? You think about a, a suburban environment that is built a certain way, built at a certain density. You know, as Mayor Crombie would say, built around the automobile, historically built around the automobile. So how do you move beyond that? And so this really talks to some of the principles of the Urban Diabetes Declaration, which is is part of the the City's Changing Diabetes Program, which is really trying to incorporate health into every policy. So it gets into things like food deserts and built environment and walkability. Like all of that is 
in the potential basket of solutions, but really nothing happens without community engagement, and that's really what the program is based on. So, so why did Mississauga take this up? Do you know? So the question of why Mississauga is an interesting one. So we know that rates of diabetes in Mississauga are well above the Ontario provincial average, and that's really true of all of Peel region. Over the age of 65, it's actually quite an, uh, an interesting jump in, in vulnerability. So within Peel region, diabetes rates rise to one in three adults after the age of 65. But then you kind of factor on top of that, that more than 50% of Peel region identify as Asian, South Asian, Black, Arab, Hispanic, or Indigenous. Those groups we know are at an increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes over the course of their lives. So there's more risk factor in Mississauga, but the flip side of that is that I think there's also some potential to do some innovative things. I would say, you know, certainly within, in a global context, Mississauga is probably one of the most diverse cities on the planet, I would argue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got more than 50% of people born outside of Canada. It's very much a, a city that acts as a landing place for newcomers to Canada. So there's some unique attributes um, that maybe make Mississauga an ideal place to try and uh, what we call bending the curve, uh, bending the curve on urban diabetes. Um, and I think that that makes it a little bit unique uh, relative to the other 39 cities in the network. That explains, you know, why Mississauga is a good candidate. But why would a municipality decide, you know, that this is something they want to tackle? Is there an economic factor that's, that's playing into it? Oh, I think that uh, I probably should have started with that, Jay. That's a great point. Uh, you know, when you kind of roll back that strain of, of diabetes on healthcare systems and we look at that trajectory of the disease over time, I do think that it, it starts to put an unbelievable strain on the healthcare system at large, but also society is at large, right? So yeah. we know diabetes leading cause of strokes, uh, heart attacks, lower limb amputations, leading cause of blindness. Uh, the list goes on and on in terms of some of the negative health consequences of poorly managed diabetes. And you expand that out across an entire community and for sure, there's huge economic costs associated with that. And I think that's really the impetus for Mississauga getting on board to try and do something around that. There's a, irrespective of the obvious human suffering that comes from that, yes, there is an economic downside for sure. Uh, that's pretty well documented. Okay, so we all understand, you know, what Mississauga looks like as sort of like a bedroom community, uh, a suburban city, although a very large city. So what's it going to look like? What sort of changes can actually be made with a what is a fairly young city as compared to some of the others on your list? Yeah, and I, I, I wish I had a good answer for that. And the reason why, I'll, I'll give you something uh, anecdotal here. Sure. So really, it, it's more around the process that you follow to get to the solution. So I, I will make the shameless plug for the cityschangingdiabetes.com website. There's a ton of resources on there. If any of your listeners want to see some of the, the cases and case studies, that there's a case catalog there that provides some pretty detailed worked up examples coming from the other 39 cities. Some of those might be impossible to implement in Mississauga. And I, I, I use the example uh, for you or any of your listeners who've been to Copenhagen. You know, they've got cycling infrastructure in that city that looks like a shrunken version of the Gardner Expressway. And at any given point in a morning rush hour, you can watch thousands of people from the age of 8 to 80 using some of that some of that infrastructure, but they also have snow that will melt by 11 o'clock in the morning, right? So I don't know how feasible that is for a city like Mississauga that, you know, has a a Canadian winter, you know, a proper Canadian winter. So these are the types of solutions that what the solutions will look like in Mississauga, 
that will be determined by the community stakeholders and other partners that are involved, and that includes community groups, the city itself, uh, you know, public health. It can include a, a wide range of private sector. Uh, there, there's a lot of partners that come together, and that, I think, is really the strength of the approach, bringing together people who wouldn't normally have these types of conversations about what makes sense for Mississauga based on what we understand and know about diabetes in the city. Well, you know, diabetes, as our population ages, it just becomes a huge issue, not just in Mississauga, but I would imagine across Canada. So, you know, is this scalable? Are there other communities and and other levels of government who are looking at this? Yeah, and I I would hope that it is. And I think even within the program itself, I mean, this is a program that started with uh, a handful of four or five cities back in 2014. It's now grown to, actually, there was a 41st city that has joined since Mississauga a couple weeks ago. That represents well over 200 million people around the world are, are in these 41 cities globally. So I would hope that it is scalable. But I think part of the difference in approach here is no individual person, level of government, uh, community organization doing it on their own, right? It's kind of the strength of that collaboration to say, what are the solutions that actually make sense? Uh, Great example coming out of a city like Houston, as an example, where they very early on engaged with faith-based communities to try and um, uh, increase the number of people that they could actually provide some basic education to in terms of disease progression. So that's something that we've seen scalable and it's been picked up by other cities as well. So that's, I think, a really good example. I guess it's early days for Mississauga, right? The program is just starting. So I, I, I guess you haven't come to the solutions yet, right? No, that's a a journey, uh, Jamie, that will probably last the next two to three years at a minimum uh, and hopefully longer. But that's uh, the the first step was the important first step was a couple of weeks ago uh, with Mayor Crombie and the entire city council signing the urban diabetes declaration and and really starting to dig into this. Will you come back again and tell us uh, how things are progressing? I would be honored and would love to. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome, Jamie. Thanks a lot. That was Adam Marcella. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss conscious transformation on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Tracy Sograti has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage. And you can find her at sogratiyoga.com, sogratiyoga on Facebook, or at Tracy Sograti on Instagram. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing? 
Oh, I'm so happy to see Well, not see you, hear you. (laughs) Happy to be here. Excellent. Happy to have you. So last month, we discussed this notion of self-narrative and reauthoring and sort of approaching issues without sort of self-defeating yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. Like seeing things from a bit of a distance and then changing how you see them. And, and you promised us that this time around, we'd get to the business of actually transforming. So I'm going to leave you to it. Okay. So like, where do you want to go? Where do you want to start? Okay. So, you know, as we're coming out of the pandemic, one of the things that I'm noticing, and I'm, I'm saying that, you know, with as much positive energy as I can, we're yeah. coming out we're, of we're it. We're pretending that it's in the rear view mirror. Go ahead. Yeah, carry on. <laughs> What I notice is that people just repeatedly do what they've always done, okay, with their money, their bodies, their drinking, you know, and even if you want to change, and that's because, you know, whatever you've done before, even if it's killing you, it feels safe. Yeah, of course. You know what? It's familiar. It's familiar. Exactly. And so when you really want to change, it, it requires sort of these three things, pattern recognition, which the foundation of that is really accountability motivation and vision so you have to be able to see it and then like behavioral intervention you have to change your behavior and it has to happen every day mm-hmm. can we come with a tangible example yeah would that help yeah yeah definitely. okay so like i'm a world-class procrastinator and if there's something <laughs> painful that i that like i don't want to do mm-hmm. trust me i'll find a million ways not to do it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all right so let's talk through that how would that manifest right okay so, okay, so the first thing that you have to do is you have to go through pattern recognition. Okay. okay. So if I'm working with a client, I might go through, say, three generations of your family to understand where this pattern came from and what it actually means to you. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so tell me a little bit about when that started for you. Like, what's the first time you remember procrastinating and what was the feeling around it? Tell me the story. I was a terrible student. Like I'm a smart mm-hmm. dude, but I was a terrible student. So anytime I had, like I could write an, a test or an exam, but if I had something to write, like if I had, mm-hmm. you know, this essay was due at a certain time, I would invariably wait to the last minute to do it, like mm-hmm. without fail. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. when it first manifested. Yeah, yes. You're telling me a bit about the behavior, but tell me what prompted the behavior. Like when you say I'm a terrible student, right? What's the pattern around that? Like, how did Hmm. you know you were a terrible student? Was it just because you did it at the last minute? So what's the actual pattern? The actual pattern is I would always fear the work. Right, the work is never as bad as you think it's going to be, or at least I think it's going to be. I'm always mm-hmm. fear. If I throw myself into something, I'm like a tenacious worker. You know that about yeah, me, yeah. right? Like I'll blow through anything, right? Yeah. But the thought of the work in advance is, would always terrify me. It still does. Okay. Okay, great. So the pattern is actually that the thought of the work, okay, mm-hmm. what your brain does when you think of the work is the work seems bigger than your capacity to do the work. And so the behavior is then avoidance of the work. Correct. Okay. Does that make sense? Sure. Okay. So, yeah, so absolutely. So anyone can start doing exactly what I did and just asking themselves questions like, when did I notice that this problem showed up in my life mm-hmm. and what was underneath it? And you can do it with procrastination, like what we're doing here. You can do it with patterns of conflict, patterns of stress. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now that you look at, you've looked at the pattern for you, Jamie, mm-hmm. of why you avoided it. So the problem looks really big. Your capacity seems less than your ability to solve the problem. You dealt with it by avoiding it. And that was successful because it allowed you to maybe avoid the fear. Yeah. I mean, successful, you know, it's prolonging 
what I would fear was the inevitable, right? And mm-hmm. so, you know, it would manifest in, oh, maybe I'd go eat something to distract myself, right? Uh-huh. Or, or or I'd watch TV or I'd do something to keep my brain from circling back to, okay, you really need to go and do what you were supposed to do, right? Okay, great, great. So the feeling was a big feeling, whether that was fear or anxiety, and you did a behavior, eating, watching TV, to distract you from feeling the uncomfortable feeling. Great. Okay, so we've got the pattern. Then you have to be willing to picture, right? So this is the motivation and vision part of things, right? How you might feel if the procrastination, and notice, I don't know if the listeners listened last month, but we talked about externalizing the problem. So, you know, I'm doing that here. Yeah. How would you feel if the problem that you had, you know, this fear or this, the procrastination wasn't in control. I would feel, I I wouldn't feel so anxious. I mean, I still do it, right? I mean, there's, Mm -hmm. you know, like with my taxes, with this, with that, like I'm I'm constantly afraid of, you know, what it's going to take to get things done and and what the result will be and how it will manifest and how can I possibly deal with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the peace of mind, the calmness, I I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't have road rage. I wouldn't eat emotionally. I, Mm -hmm. I would, I think I'd be a different person. I really do. Uh huh. Okay. So if the procrastination wasn't in control, then you would feel like a different person. And you would know that the evidence of that would be you would be calmer, you would be more relaxed, and you would be less worried. Okay, yeah. So and because I know I am a competent person, I think I would get good results, right? And as opposed yeah. to putting me under the stress of having to do things at the last minute or, you know, which I can do, but yeah. I often wonder what it would be like to not do things at the last minute. And, yeah. and, you know, what would that look like in terms of my creations and the, even the drudge work that needs to get done? Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know? See, so this is, this is why I love your brain. So first of all, you're, you're even like going, you're naturally going to the next step. Like what would that look like? Okay. Mm-hmm. So you've talked about the feeling, which is the thing that has to motivate people, right? So when you think about that future you that's living a life free of the procrastination, there's this feeling of both accomplishment because you know you're a really competent individual. You're, you know, despite the procrastination, you're super successful. You know, you're a charismatic guy. You do whatever you put your mind to. So you've already got that, but imagine having all of that and at the same time, the procrastination isn't in control. So you know that you would feel great, right? Yeah. So from here, you have to really go through something that we can call reverse engineering. Okay. okay. Back mm-hmm. from that person. And this is you know, true for everybody. So for some people, in order to reverse engineer, they have to find a mentor, somebody who is has what they want, right, mm-hmm. has that capacity, say in this case it would be to not procrastinate, who could actually help them reverse engineer the steps backwards. But we can do this right here. So if we were to reverse engineer the procrastination, okay, and get you from a place of today procrastinating and doing everything at the last minute to being that future Jamie who just does things without doing the intermediate behavior that procrastination is telling him to do, what would that look like? It would mean that my workflow would change. It would mean... How? Give me something tangible. So it has to be like an action step. How would your workflow change just in a very minute way daily? It would, uh, instead of it being sort of break intense, I think I would be more efficient. 
right? Mm-hmm. I, I actually think I would get more done if I stopped worrying about things that I needed to get done, if that makes sense. You know? Yeah, yeah. So if you just maybe planned out your priorities for the week and then did each thing without talking yourself out of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You know, when my kids come to me with problems, they'll say, uh-huh. you know, like I wanted to do X, for example, my daughter wanted to secure a summer job because she's yeah. in law school. And I broke it down. I said, okay, so what is your ultimate goal? Mm-hmm. We're going to work backwards. It's, it's exactly. funny. I can do this for other people. I can't do it for myself. Right. I said to her, okay, so if that's the job, here are the things that you need to do to get you into that place. We need to maximize the number of interviews you have. Yeah. We need to prep you for the interviews. You need to organize yourself and, and find out and research which firms it is, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. And this has played out, you know, several times for my kids in, 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 in achieving those goals. The interesting thing is I can't seem to do it for myself. Well, you're just not in the habit of doing it for yourself. It's harder to see ourselves, right? We're so reactive. Like I said, right at the beginning, I said, we will continuously do what we know, even if it's killing us. It's true. So, you know, at the beginning, when I also said it requires behavioral intervention and daily practice, there's two things. So you reverse engineer back to today and think, okay, like, what are the small, tiny steps that I need to take today in order to be that future Jamie? And then there's the continuous act of trying sometimes failing and trying again. Yeah. Okay. So for you, that might look like, and you know, if I, if we were in a session together, I wouldn't make these suggestions so overtly, but like just because of our, yeah, time, I, I would probably have you create your priorities in the day. Right. And then figure out how to execute a priority, like breaking up your projects into these little bite sized pieces and then, you know, executing priorities on a daily basis so that you really limit the tendency to procrastinate and then see what happens after like two weeks, you know, and then go from there. I would do something like that with you. That makes sense. We have time for one last tiny little bit. Where do you want to go? So, you know, the place that I want to go is I want people to really think about what's holding them back Mm -hmm. in the change process. You know, I can't tell you how many times I have people come into the room with me and they can envision, you know, the kind of life they want, the kind of relationship they want, the way they would like to resolve conflict. And they can't figure out how to get from where they are today to that place. And so often it's, you know, the inability to plan, so to reverse engineer what we're talking about here. But the other problem is that we're often so unconscious, and this is where the mindfulness piece comes in. We're often so unaware of what we do as individuals to perpetuate the behaviors that are actually, you know, I say killing us because I think if you're not living the life you want to live, it is killing you. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a total waste of your time. So I think it's really important to ask yourself every day, like, what, what am I doing that is holding me back from truly living the richness of the life that I want to live? And being really honest with ourselves about what that is. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Joel Thuna, Shauna Linzen, Adam Marsala, and Tracy Sograti. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The November-December issue is available free on racks in over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, tonic.ca. 
If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.